0: Since it first started tumbling into Ireland through the old pirate coves of West Cork and in the stomachs of drug mules coming from Miami, cocaine has become the drug of our nation. It has swept in like a blizzard, dusting every corner of every small town. And so swift and total has its spread been that the Irish are now some of the biggest users in the world. But to unravel how a small island like ours on the edge of Europe ended up such a big player in the major cocaine leagues. We must follow the white supply lines back to the beginning. We must follow the routes it has taken as it travels across the globe. And most importantly, we need to follow the cowboys who put us on the map. So join me, Nicola Talent, for my new live show, Cocaine Cowboys, the story of Ireland's love affair with Colombia's biggest export, Limited tickets now available for February 10th at the Lime Tree Theatre in Limerick, February 15th in Cork's Everyman and at Dublin's Three Olympia on Sunday, February 18th. Tickets available at venues are on mcd.ie.
1: They came from deprived backgrounds. The north inner city where they came from, during the 70s, there was very poor housing conditions. They were also uh, using this policy of detenant in the inner city. But I suppose in doing so, they were disrupting a lot of those really strong community ties. It led to a lot of instability in the inner city at the time. I think that's one of the factors that might have, I suppose, provided maybe greater uh, opportunities for for criminality to emerge.
0: I'm Nicola Tallant. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A fascinating study of the Bugsy Malones, the gang of children led by a young Jerry the Monk Hutch in Dublin in the 1970s, has found that the state let down the North Inner City youngsters over and over again. Criminology lecturer Dr. Kira Malloy conducted research into the phenomenon of the youth subculture labelled by the media and treated like hardened criminals. Today I'm talking with Kira, who's based at the University of Sheffield, about the Bugsy Malones and what we can learn from the mistakes of our past. This is Crime World, a podcast from SundayWorld.com. So, we are going to talk about the Bugsy Malone gang, Kira, And of course, they sort of keep popping up. This was a Dublin youth gang that was around in the 1970s. And uh, the infamous Jerry Hutch was said to be a member of them, um, which is maybe why they keep popping up and we keep kind of revisiting them. But you did an interesting piece recently, uh, an opinion piece on, you know, why they still matter and what, you know, how we should sort of look on them. So I suppose start off with, let's describe a little bit of where they came from and where they were positioned, what Dublin was like back then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Bugsy Malones, like you said, Nicola, they were this delinquent youth subculture that came out in Dublin in the 1970s. Now, there's evidence there that suggests it was during the mid-70s, about 74, 75, that they actually kind of kind of emerged or came together as a group. But really, it wasn't until 1977 that they kind of hit public consciousness. And the reason for this, that there was an article published in the Evening Herald by a journalist called Liam Ryan um, writing about this Bugsy Malone gang and he claimed that a group of young people a group of young lads aged between 11 to 15 had carried out a jump over of northern bank on o'connell street so a jump over was kind of like what it says on the tin that they went into the bank jumped over the counter and grabbed any cash that that was lying there um, and then legged it back out again And so the Boxing Malones became renowned for these kind of jump overs. And in that first jump over of Northern Bank, they stole about £1,400 at the time, um, which was quite a substantial um, sum of money back for 1977. Um, And then two years later, the 13-year-old leader of the gang, who was called um, by newspapers at the time as the godfather, uh, was arrested by the Gardaí. Um, I suppose the original press coverage very early on was actually, it was very like admiring um, of the Bugsy Malones and almost glorified their activities to some extent. Uh, so it described how the Bugsy's had carried out this daring raid of the bank and kind of implied that they were outwitting the Gardee, even though they were so young. Um, so that was kind of one of the main activities that the Bugsy Malones became known for back in the 70s. A second major activity was handbag snatching, and mm-hmm. um, particularly in the north inner city. So there was a junction at Summerhill and Gardner Street, there's a junction and it became known as Handbag Junction because the Bugsy Malones had developed this kind of elaborate scheme there. So there would be at least three of them involved. There'd be one on a rooftop kind of looking and spotting cars that were coming by. They were looking out usually for loan female drivers and um, that she had maybe the driver had the handbag in the front seat. So so that would be easy. There'd be a second Bugsy Malone then at the pedestrian crossing lights, ready to press the buttons so that the traffic lights to turn red and the car would stop. And there'd be at least a third Bugsy alone nearby then. And um, So when the, the spotter on the roof saw this, you know, ideal victim or this car coming forward, they'd signal to the second Bugsy Malone who would press the, the pedestrian crossing lights, the lights would turn red, and then the third one would come out, smash the window, grab the bag, and they'd, they'd leg it off and, and kind of devo- divide the spoils mm. um, at the time. And um, so again, while there was probably, a, there was a degree of planning that went into this type of crime, and um, but at the same time, a lot of what the Bugsy Malones engaged in was very minor level criminality. And it was really mostly offences against property uh, rather than offences against the person that they carried out at the time. So tell
0: Um, me this much. Did the media name them the Bugsy Malones or were they calling themselves that? Because, you know, often like there's a lot of this sort of, I think particularly here in Ireland, criminals sometimes have nicknames, sometimes that's for legal reasons if they can't be named. But often they have nicknames because they've been given them within their own communities and their societies. Um, So what happened in this case?
1: So in this particular case, you're so right. It did seem to be really an invention by the media. And it was a really convenient invention because the previous year, actually the previous month in December 1976, there was actually a film called Bugsy Malone that was directed by Alan Parker. And that had been released in Irish and it was just that previous month before this inaugural jump over of Northern Bank. And um, so that 1976 film, it starred the young Jodie Foster, John Cassisi, Scott Baio. It featured the cast of child actors um, and it was loosely set and um, it was based on the careers of Al Capone and Bugs Moran set in New York in the 1920s during Prohibition um, but it was very like a really fun and engaging take on the gangster genre so for instance when machine guns in that film hit victims it didn't hit them with bullets it hit them with whipped cream instead um, so again kind of that, that fun and lively take on that gangster genre and it became really convenient for the Evening Herald to apply this term um, like I don't think there's anything really unusual about the Bugsy Malones as a subculture, as a group in in 1977, 1978. Like this idea, a group of young lads in an urban environment getting up to trouble. That was nothing new in Dublin in the 1970s. It's nothing new today. We still see that happening quite a lot. But there were a couple, I think, of kind of broader social factors in the 70s that made it more um, convenient and more likely for, for the press at the time to really pick up on this Bugsy Malone story. And um, Particularly there was a lot of competition that the Evening Herald was facing at the time. So it was kind of in a big rivalry with the Evening Press. So during the 70s, for instance, the Evening Press circulation it rose by 10%, but the readership numbers of the Herald dropped off by about 16% during that same period. and um, So that the Evening Herald started engaging in a lot more colourful, a lot more sensational stories to try and kind of claw back some of this readership that it lost to the press. So I think that was one of the reasons why the Bugsy Malones really picked up on it, it was this colourful, this eye-catching subculture to, to, to kind of discuss.
0: And as a matter of interest while you're on that subject there, Kira, yes. did that work for the Herald? Did they claw back their circulation?
1: I don't have the exact figures for the circulation, but definitely by 1984 they were still continuing that kind of trajectory. So it does Seen that it was somewhat successful and that they kind of continued that on kind of right into the 80s as well to, to gain back that that readership that they had lost a bit during the 70s so in some ways it was quite a smart move and mm. um, from that commercial side of things and from the press or from the journalistic side of things as well.
0: And um, indicate as, as well maybe that the readers liked the crime stories back then because you know that seems yeah. to be the case these days.
1: Completely so. And like even the popularity of like true crime podcasts and shows as well today, it does show there is an appetite there and there's always that interest in it. And mm. um, particularly as well, there, there there were a lot of misrepresentations of the bugsy Malones in the press. And that probably made them out to be maybe a lot more exciting or a lot more colourful than the reality so just to give an example there was this alleged spanish holiday that the bugsy malones took in 1978 which got a lot of press attention from the herald and from the press and from other newspapers at the time and um, so Essentially, kind of kind of, what happened is that the newspapers reported that a group of about 12 Bugsy Malones were spotted in Dublin Airport and that they were spotted boarding a plane that was going to Benidorm in Spain. And the Evening Herald at the time, they kind of made it out that the Bugsy Malones were going on this Spanish holiday on the proceeds of, of criminality, that they had used the money from their handbag snatching and from their jump overs and other crimes to actually fund this holiday. Um, and as you can imagine it was a bit of a field day for the press at the time and um, so the evening press for instance on the 4th of September 1978 their headline was larceny charge kids on Spanish holiday um, but again that was quite a, a distortion of the, the true reality so there was a journalist with McGill magazine at the time his name was JJ Malloy um, and looked into they actually did the fact checking behind this holiday and looked into it and found that the holiday had actually been organised by a group of responsible adults from the inner city and that they were bringing some kind of deprived kids from the locality with them and there was 19 people in total that went on the holiday just five of them were aged under 17 and two of these didn't have a criminal record so in actuality there was probably only about three members of the Bugsy Malones that went on this holiday um, and not on the proceeds of criminal act- of criminal activity and though I suppose the Bugsy Malones didn't really help themselves in some way so um, I interviewed a lot of participants who came into contact with the Bugsy Malones during the 70s. And they reportedly um, wrote postcards from Spain and they sent them back to the local guardie. Uh, in Dublin and also sent them to District Justice Eileen Kennedy who was judge of the Children's Court at the time and um, I never got to see any of those postcards I was trying to track them down and couldn't find copies anywhere so I can only imagine what they said but it probably didn't help this kind of mythology that was surrounding the Bugsy Malones as really young and um, kind of organised criminals at the time And um, So yeah. did
0: their reputation and that you know kind of I suppose cool term around them yeah. <laughs> Did that empower them more than they might have been?
1: I think we can speculate that it really did. And I should say, look, one of the limitations surrounding the story of the Bugsy Malones at the moment is that unfortunately we don't have any of their stories or their lived experiences on record. And um, I did try to capture that with my own research. Unfortunately, the arrival of the pandemic during mm. during my data collection kind of hindered that ability to capture their stories. So a lot of what we know about them at the moment either comes from the press um, or comes from kind of the perspective perspectives or participants who came into contact with them or personal or professional levels. But certainly from the evidence we have, it does seem like, you know, the Boxy Millons weren't necessarily a cohesive gang until the time that the Herald started talking about them. And you can imagine maybe a group of young people growing up in, in a deprived area and, you know, the, the, the inner city was going through a really difficult period in the 70s due to a variety of factors, but a group of young people who maybe have been marginalized from society Maybe didn't have you know much of a standing or, or much of an identity developed at that time because they were so young. They're now reading about their exploits on the front page of the Herald and on the evening newspapers, and you can I think very logically imagine that that would have empowered them and that they, they came to adopt this Bugsy Malone identity. You know, even though that was a term that was largely kind of superimposed by the media at the time on them.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, you know, did your research, for example, suggest that they were a loosely Related grouping and that probably, you know, the naming them made them, created them into a gang rather than the reality of it.
1: Yeah, 100%, absolutely. And um, so like I kind of analyze this group from the perspective of, of subcultures. So I'm um, looking at kind of localized class-based groups usually distinguished by age and generation. But with a lot of subcultures, so think like the Teddy Boys, Mods, Goths, Skinheads, Punks, a lot of them can also be distinguished by kind of stylistic and musical preferences. They do stand out. They are quite unique in their time and in their environment. That didn't come to the fore with the Bugsy Malones, and I was searching for that to try and see if there was anything that unique or distinctive there. Um, and there, there wasn't really, like their gathering place was the entrance to St. Mary's Mansion's Flats, so it was known as the gate. The main way that interview participants could identify them was because they were all gathered around there. There seemed to be a very fluid grouping. There was at least six core members, but people said, look, there could be up to 20 uh, Bugsy Malones, which, you know, isn't a cohesive gang. It's a large group of young people hanging out together that you'd expect to see um, everywhere. Um but I suppose what was the, the term Bugsy Malone? It kind of it became a catch all term mm-hmm. in Ireland in the 70s and beyond. And it became symbolic of kind of any juvenile delinquent and um, that was carrying out any sort of deviant or criminal activity in any way shape or form and that kind of how that term has proliferated from the 70s onwards i think is a really interesting kind of kind of study in itself as well
0: and could you see any actual structure i mean they were very young maybe to be behaving like an organized crime group could you see a structure you can obviously see six key members did they yeah. did they have a leader did they have you know some some various uh, layers as such of authority.
1: I suppose, from the perspective of the interview participants I talked to, they did identify one particular member of the group who was the leader, the main persona in that group, and that was Jerry Hutch. And um, so, for instance, one of the a local priest that had worked in the inner city at that time that I interviewed, he told this story about Hutch when he was twelve years old. That they were in the in the classroom, they were in school. A teacher told came in and told the class they to open their books on page twenty five. But Jerry Hutch was sitting at the front of the classroom. He turned around to the other young people in the class. He shook his head, and none of them would open their books or obey the teacher in any way. And um, so that was just one of those many type of stories that participants told me about Jerry Hutch. And look, it's absolutely impossible to verify whether this was accurate in any way, shape, or form. But I think it really does capture a lot of that mythology that surrounds Hutch as this really cool, charismatic, and um, criminal, even at the age of twelve. And again, you have to think maybe a lot of that was kind of retrospectively superimposed on on the Bugsy Malones at the time when we learned more. Um, you know about Jerry. Hutch's career later on and um, but yeah it just was really interesting to see that that mythology coming about and um, of course Hutch like as an adult he became associated with carrying out high-profile robberies though he was never convicted of them so the Marino Mark robbery in, in 1987 and the Style ideco robbery in 1995 and um, so a lot of people had suggested that maybe his you know his alleged future future involvement in those robberies that maybe that had been grounded in the 1970s in those kind of more small scale robberies that the Bugsy Malones engaged in um I, can, I think another interesting point about Hutch again he's actually the only former member of the Bugsy Malones I've come across who has actually confirmed on record that he was a member of this subculture There was an interview that he carried out with journalist Veronica Gearin back in March 1996. And when talking about the Bugsy Malones, he said that we were kids then doing jump overs. So jumping over bank counters to steal cash, shoplifting, robberies, burglaries, anything that was going, we did it. That was normal for any inner city kid then. Mm. So even in that kind of statement, you can almost see him... um, uh, kind of toning down that that you know that that media furore that's around the Bugsy Moans just saying that we were just kind of a normal We were group. just kids yeah. We were yeah. just kids and we were just doing what other kids were kind of doing at the time. Um, and but, he's, he's so-
0: unique also in that uh, as you were saying to me before we come on well firstly he's alive uh, and he's still <sighs> with us right so these were kids from a very very underprivileged place at the time like A lot of those robberies were probably to actually feed themselves or feed their family. These kids probably weren't out there collecting money so as they could go on a foreign holiday. I mean, this yeah. was sort of basic needs nearly with them.
1: I think you're right, Nicola, absolutely. And when you kind of look more into those that socioeconomic background that the Bugsy Malone's came from as well, I think that point comes out really strongly. So by all accounts, look, it was it, they came from deprived backgrounds. And um, the, the north inner city where they came from during the 70s, there was very poor housing conditions. There was a lot of overcrowding there. And Dublin Corporation at the time, they're also uh, using this policy of detenning in the inner city. So they were moving a lot of residents who had been there for generations. They were being moved and transplanted out to these larger housing complexes in Ballymun, Ballyfermot, and Darndale. But I suppose in doing so, they were disrupting a lot of those really strong community ties. Like some people lived in the inner city for generations upon generations. Everyone knew one another but instead that they were kind of breaking up that sense of community led to a lot of instability in the inner city at the time. I think that's one of the factors that might have kind of, I suppose, provided um, maybe greater opportunities for for criminality to emerge. Um, At the time as well, there was also very little value placed on educational attainment. So the local primary schools that the Bugsy Malones would have attended was Rutland Street Primary School, but it had the nickname at the time of the red brick slaughterhouse um which is quite quite an ominous term for you know a local primary school and really that was because of the really extreme levels of corporal punishment and mm. um, that took place there and um, corporal punishment wouldn't be outlined in schools until 1982 but mm. by all accounts the Bugsy Malones were kind of almost beaten black and blue to a certain extent in school as a lot of young people were um, at the time and in that and um, in, in that time as well and um, so as you can imagine it didn't really encourage them to look at you know furthering on or staying in education there's actually a study carried out in 1978 by Morrissey and Murphy and they found that about 78 percent of young people in the north inner city age between 15 to 18 had left school at that stage so they were getting out of school as, as quickly as they could and um, which is which is maybe understandable kind of given and um, given that wider backdrop of corporal punishment. Um, There was also a lack of legitimate employment opportunities at the time, so manual work on the docks, that would have been one of the major sources of employment um, for um, individuals living in the inner city, but because of the introduction of, say, mechanical grabs, there was also the standardisation of containers in the 60s and 70s, and this really reduced the need for for bodies on the ground or for physical labour. So between 1967 and 1979, the number of cross channel dockers actually fell from 1200 to 200. So that route of employment that was largely decimated during the 70s. And major businesses that had been in the inner city, like TNC Martins or like Brooks Thomas, they either shut down or they relocated to, you know, outside the the city, the city centre where rent and rates were cheaper out there. And so by April 1979, like the unemployment rate um, in Mountjoy A. Ward and it captured a lot of the north inner city, like Railway Street, Sean McDermott Street, Corporation Street, Buckingham Street, and other parts the unemployment rate there was 16.2%. So that was about three times higher than, than the employment rate in Dublin County Borough um, in general. Um, and one of my participants commented that, I suppose, given this deprived background, the Bugsy Malones, like we should be surprised that they're working more gangs like the Bugsy Malones um, back then as well. So like you say, you can understand from that background maybe why the Bugsy Malones were attracted to criminality and why they're really working an awful lot of other legitimate forms of employment for them to pursue when they left school. Yeah.
0: Like it's it's painting a really bleak picture um of, you know, and, and some people are still living in communities, you know, it it you know, time has passed, the decades have passed, there's a lot of development, but we do and can identify certain communities that kids are coming of age with those same problems. You know, um obviously they're coming from deprived backgrounds, their community's been decimated by a decision to move uh you know, neighbors out and families breaking up families probably as they're as they're moving out to those big suburbs. You've an education system which isn't very welcoming for kids coming from those backgrounds, and then to top it all off, how did we punish them as children? You know, we we sent them to these borstels and uh, where at least maybe they might have been fed, but that was pretty much it. So that that was causing another layer of. I think probably, you know, you could call it a sort of a hatred to society and and to people of, of, you know, who are luckier than them in their, um, you know, in their births.
1: Yeah, no, completely. And I think you raised a really interesting point there about kind of the responses that we had to these groups. And you mentioned Borstal's there. There was a particular institution that was actually set up in response to the Bugsy Malones, and that was Lock and House. So Locken House had opened as early as 1972 um, as a prison for young male offenders, aged 16 to 21. So it's located up in Blackline in County Cavan. But actually during the period 1978 to 83, it was converted as a place of detention for or the booksy Malones, for young people aged 12 to 16. Um, now we should note that a lot of the young people detained in Lock and House during that five-year period, they weren't all from Dublin, like they were juvenile offenders from Cork, leash I think Waterford was one of the addresses of the young people as well. So again, that, that term Bugsy Malone was a really catch-all one that captured a lot of juvenile delinquents during the period. But the press at the time really linked the opening of Lock House to this original inner city Bugsy Malone subculture um, at the time. There was a huge amount of opposition to the fact that lock and house is being used for the booksy malone so there was particularly this interest group called care and the censor the the campaign for the care of deprived children had been set up in 1970 to try and lobby for improved childcare services in ireland and they were particularly critical of Lock and House. So Lock and House was staffed entirely by prison officers, again, which wasn't suitable for young people aged 12 to 16. I should say it wasn't the prison officer's fault. Um, by all accounts, they didn't want to be working there. In the 70s and early 80s, this, came, this was a top-down measure. It came from the Department of Justice at the time. Um, like Lockenhouse, like we say, it was in Blackline County Cavan, so it was over 170 kilometres from Dublin to Cavan, which made it so, so difficult for the families of these young people to actually visit them. Um, and again, which you could say undermines you know, any possible rehabilitation there, that they weren't allowed to keep links with their local community or with their families to the same extent as well. Um, and I suppose as well, it's important to note that at the time in 1978 when it opened, you know, this was a time of economic recession, but by all accounts, there was a huge amount of money spent on converting Lock in House for that five-year period for the Bugsy Malones. And again, the government never gave the exact amount of money, but we can estimate it would have been about £5 million or, pounds or so at the time that would have been spent on, on converting Lock in House. Um, and the really sad thing is, is that Lockinhouse House made uh, absolutely no difference in the lives of many of the Bugsy Malones. So, in 1985, um, a journalist at McGill magazine, Mark Brenock, he reflected that all of the first 20 detainees of Lockinhouse House had actually served further custodial sentences so it didn't have any rehabilitative value whatsoever, a lot of these young people became locked in this system of of criminality, unfortunately. Um, So yeah, it was a very sad measure and unfortunately the government didn't really seem to learn um, from that at the time so by 1985 there was kind of a moral panic over young joyriders and in Ireland that was taken off and of course Fort Mitchell Prison on Spike Island then, it was announced by the government that that would be converted for a place of detention for young offenders, even though So like Lock and House didn't prove it didn't seem to make any difference whatsoever. So it's kind of a sad and very um, kind of maybe narrow-minded view of, of government policy at the
0: time. Have you, been, have you been up to Lock and House? Have you visited?
1: I haven't. And yeah. it's still on my list of places to visit. Well, I'll tell you
0: what, Kira. it could be as far away from the north Inner city and that the whole hustle and bustle, the noise, and oh. even back in the 70s when those kids would have been living on top of one another. It's just in the middle of nowhere. I'm saying that now people from uh, the area are probably going to ring up. And <laughs> yes, that it is far from that. But it it it's very rural, you know what I mean? It just feels like it's the edge of the world and surrounded with fields and sheep. And I'm sure, you know, as you mature it's nice to get out into the into the countryside. But for a twelve year old kid being taken from their family and thrown into that environment in a prison um seems like a cruelty beyond something hope we're talking about this because we, you know, we're talking about what we can and are learning from our past and from our responses to to gangs and to youth uh, subcultures that emerged. But um, I imagine that all those kids that went there, that they were branded. Then were they that they had been detained in this place and. What a start to life.
1: Absolutely. I think you're totally right. I think it's that labelling effect, unfortunately, when you're labelled and like you say, branded as a criminal that unfortunately that becomes, can become, not for everyone, but it can become, I think in a lot of cases, kind of that that self-fulfilling prophecy and um, that's there as well, which is really sad and like we kind of mentioned at the start unfortunately a lot of the boxing Malone's just didn't survive beyond the 1980s and um, so i think there were one or two who were killed in in armed robberies in the 70s there was one in particular in in 1982 and um, it was an armed robbery of the bni ferry terminal in dublin port in which one former member was killed In 1987, then the robbery of the North Cumberland Street Labour Exchange, in which another member was killed. But I think one of the another one of the major factors that really wiped out a lot of the Bugsy Malones, it seems, was the heroin epidemic Mm -hmm. that swept through Dublin in, in the 80s. So heroin first came into Dublin around 1979 or so. And by 1982, there's this terrifying statistic there that about 9% of young people aged 15 to 24 in the north inner city were actually using this drug, which was absolutely unimaginable and which decimated lives, decimated families and and decimated a lot of that original subculture as well, unfortunately.
0: And like all those things we've just been talking about, all those deprivations that those kids suffered, you know, and I suppose it the world must have felt very unwelcoming for them and they must have felt they didn't have a place in it. That's really why heroin took a grip, isn't it? Because yeah. it sort of it was as if it gave them this very warm cuddle, you know, and, and it yeah. was it just swept in like a blizzard there into the north inner city. And of course that was only the first epidemic that wiped yeah. out those kids.
1: Absolutely. No, I think you're 100% right there. And yeah, it's just a very sad, sad ending to a lot. There's still a number of Bugsy Moans that have survived, but I think for a lot of them, it just was a very, a very sad ending. And one, you know, imagine if that almost five million pounds at the time that had been spent in Lock and House, if that had been diverted into the north inner city for, I don't know, day tenant centers or educational projects or employment opportunities you know, imagine the differences it could have made. Mm. It it certainly would have made a bit better difference than Lock and House when a lot of the members just ended up later in prison and later on in life. But it could have made a huge difference, maybe if different choices, I think, had been made at the time. And that's the really the frustrating part. And I think when looking back at this history of the Bugsie Malones, just how different things could have been.
0: And it's that's one of the things, I suppose, that we should always remind ourselves and learn from that is that, you know, putting... Uh, money into preventative measures is always better, isn't it? And these yeah. community groups and all these community workers are really the ones who should be getting the the funding and the resources as opposed to sometimes uh, law enforcement. But um, so what a kind of a, a, in an overview, what can we learn from this? What uh, should we kind of recognize uh, we did right or we did wrong? And also how does this kind of grouping sit today? There are Bugsy Malone gangs still out there now. um, And are they any different to the ones from the 1970s?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really interesting question. And I think that in terms of what we can kind of learn from the past or why this group is still relevant today, I think there is that bit of a tendency, you know, to look at the and Malones, this kind of random youth subculture that emerged in the 70s and we just kind of compartmentalize them and leave them there and kind of move on. But I think there's a lot that that short episode in Irish history can teach us. So I think one of the first is that kind of the moral panic. And um, so that kind of very disproportionate and very sensationalized response that we saw around the Bugsy Malones in the 70s and that we have to be very wary I think when those emerge particularly with surrounding juvenile crime. A lot of the times it results in really dehumanizing language so um, I think I mentioned at the start that, you know, the newspapers were originally, they were quite um, quite admiring almost glorifying the activities of the Bugsy Malones. But as you trace that coverage through the newspapers, it became a lot darker and a lot more disturbing over time. Um, at one stage, one of the newspapers quoted a senior detective who claimed the Bugsy Malones were like young rats preying on the public. And again, that use of very animalistic and dehumanizing language to describe a group of young people is doing absolutely nothing to help this group. If anything, it's just marginalizing an already marginalized group and even further. So being careful around that type of language, especially in the context of youth crime, I think is really important. And I think a second lesson that we can learn from the Bugsy Malones is that we do need to reduce that empathy gap that can often exist by looking for alternative perspectives. So I think a a lot for a lot of their history, the the media um, and the press kind of representations of the boxing loans that's the main kind of caricatures of this group that have survived and but I suppose in kind of capturing other voices of the people who came into contact with them on personal and professional levels whether prison staff journalists youth workers and inner city priests at the time um, the politicians the people who came you know might have come into contact with this group I think can shed a lot more light on their individual and group characteristics and that was something that came across really strongly from my research that you know a lot of the interview participants described how the books malones had lots of positive traits they were very loyal to people that they respect in the local area they were really kind so they showed a lot of empathy to other young people from the inner city into a situation like themselves they're also really quick-witted really really intelligent uh, young people as well Look, at the same time, they had destructive tendencies there and there was maybe some violent tendencies that that underpinned their behavior um, as well. But I think by by capturing alternative voices and making sure that the media isn't the only narrative or the only frame through which we understand those youths, I think that's really important in in humanizing them again and, and reducing that empathy gap that we all often have between the margins and mainstreams. Um, a third lesson that we can learn that I think we've we've already kind of touched upon is look there is a political tendency there in Ireland in particular we over rely on institutions as this kind of you know solution to perceived social problems mm. we saw that with Locking House we saw that with Spike Island and um, there's been work carried out by um, you know Donald and Ono Sullivan on course of confinement in Ireland and they've looked at direct provision centres of as that continuation of using institutions to solve perceived social crises. And usually, you know, there can be a lot of maybe human rights abuses that can emerge in these institutions. It doesn't help the the welfare of the individuals that are detained therein. So I think, like, like you were saying, Nicola, looking at these alternatives to imprisonment and to institutionalisation is something we really still need to learn from, even in Ireland. Of, of I was actually kind of-
0: hoping you were going to say we have learned the lessons from that, because was, <laughs> but we haven't, you're right.
1: Um, okay you know i'm probably being really negative i know but yeah it's probably easier to to criticize and um, we just we see so many what should be what
0: should we be doing with you know groupings like this so young i mean you're talking 12 to 16 you're talking children really here um and yet you know you can see how they're portrayed still as if that they are the they're sort of underlings in groups they're the ones who are expected to hold the drugs because they're not going to get you know hefty prison terms and all these sort of myths kind of like surround them but yeah like what responses should we be having when we start seeing kids go into these subgroups and gangs or whatever you'd call them
1: I think it comes back to that reason. Well, why is crime so attractive to them? Why are there not other alternative opportunities that they can pursue? I think that alternative, like you're saying, lies in those opportunities, whether it's educational projects or whether it's apprentice schemes or training schemes or employment opportunities. They have to be able to see a future for themselves that does not rely on, on you know, on crime to mm-hmm. to pay the bills um or are you know to to support their families as well and um, look it's not an easy answer and i think it's something that we're going to be dealing with for for a long time to come but not locking them up would be probably a really good start it I certainly think would addressing that and investing alternatives like day attendance centers educational projects and along those lines it's definitely worth a shot because what you know our, our current yeah. responses they haven't really proven to be that effective to date
0: I was talking to a, um, a a very significant criminal one time who um, had made his way up the ranks or whatever, you know, and I was asking him all about his background and about home. And I was really looking for the reasons why, you know. And uh-huh. he said to me that um, he had two choices in life. One was to become a drug dealer and the other was to become a drug user. Oh, God. Um, and... That said it all to me, didn't it? Because, you know, yeah. that's that's that wasn't his fault that they were the only two choices he'd see. Obviously, there's so many more choices for everybody, but especially in a country as wealthy and really as privileged as Ireland. I'm saying yeah. that having just returned from India, um, I can recognise <laughs> it. But um, yeah, I mean, that is all our fault if a child sees those two choices as being their only ones.
1: Oh, absolutely yeah no I think you're so right and we have to bear in mind those socioeconomic conditions that often underlie criminality and I think that was one of the the problems and certainly in the press at the time with the Bugsy Malones these individuals were pathologized as innately criminal like mm-hmm. it goes back to that almost very positivist mindset but in reality we have to pay more attention to those broader socioeconomic structures but again that's not really um that's not really attractive to politicians because they addressing socioeconomic inequality that requires a lot of money and a lot of investment um and often something maybe that's you know it's probably easier and it's certainly financially maybe in in some ways maybe easier um just to blame it on the individual rather than looking at overall state and structural policies as well so
0: it's certainly lazier tell me this much that research um where is it can 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 people access to read it? Because I would actually love to read it in full.
1: Absolutely. So I've kind of published the main research in three parts. One is in an article with Irish Economic and Social History, um, a recent one from last year that's open access. So anyone can read that. Um, another one is in Irish Probation Journal in last year's journal. Again, that's open access, free for members of the public to read. And then the third one is actually it's focused on Lock and House itself. It's published with Crime History and Societies that will be open access by twenty twenty five. So it's almost almost there. We're almost there. Fabulous,
0: yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to go and immerse myself in that uh, <laughs> because it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's bringing in sort of everything. Um, which was wrong really in Dublin and you know I work in the north inner city here and you sometimes feel that little has changed all the since the 70s of course the IFSC has gone up all around the area and all the promises that were made at the time that there was going to be jobs and opportunities and of course there were but not for people from within the community
1: yeah absolutely and that's heartbreaking to to hear um like you say it just shows that unfortunately i think we think we're as time goes on that we are progressing and mm-hmm. that we are quite modern but in reality there's a lot more continuity we've a
0: lot more to learn haven't we yeah but uh well look thanks so much for your time there Kira, today and uh anybody who wants to read further into that research you've given us uh the exact route to read it so thank you very much
1: thank you so much nicola thanks for having me on take care
0: you've been listening to crime world a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by ian and edited by me nicola talent research assistant is claude amini if you like this show and love true crime leave us a review or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from ireland and across the globe